of these things are connected. None of them would have happened without, without the other. They're all moving in lockstep. I don't know exactly where they're going, um, but they're all connected. Civil war in Colombia, humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, and authoritarian rule in Cuba. Three very different countries with very different problems. Could it be that despite the differences between their challenges, the plight of each of these Latin American nations are highly interconnected? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and helping us to make sense of recent events in Colombia, Venezuela, and Cuba is Peter Quilter, an expert on Latin American policy who's currently a non-resident senior fellow at the Kennedy School's Ash Center. Uh, the f- I wanted to start with Colombia. Yep. Um, so actually, a couple of weeks ago, we recently reposted an interview that we did with Juan Manuel Santos uh, a couple of years ago. And um, of course, he's president of Colombia. He's now a Nobel laureate. Yes, he is. Um, he was on the podcast uh, very hopeful about selling a peace deal at the time. They hadn't reached it yet, but he was hopeful that he would be able to. And of course, now we know that didn't end up happening. Right. Um, for the rest of the world, the headline was... Colombia rejects peace. Um, but obviously, it's not that simple. There no. are certainly uh, valid reasons there, I'm sure. Um, what was in that deal that made it so hard for Colombians to accept? Arguably, the fact that the accord, the accord failed was not because what was in it. Arguably, it failed because Hurricane Matthew drenched the country and turnout was therefore affected. And given that it lost by such a tiny margin, you can say that, well, externalities uh, uh, had more to do with the failure of the vote than anything else. However, I may be saying something a little bit polemical here, but I don't think this is the worst result. I think the worst result would have been for this thing to succeed by a similarly tiny margin. Because then there would have been no mandate behind it. Then we would have started talking about what's in it. Uh, And then the implementation of all these things, some of which are really uh, stomach churning, uh, would have been a a very hard slog indeed. Now, all of that said, what happened? It lost by a sliver, less than a half a percent, a very, very tiny margin. And in certain respects, it put the lie to the threat of the Santos government that if they lost, we would just all go back to war. That didn't happen. That's not going to happen. Um, that was, in my estimation, a bit of a, a bit of a miscalculation by Santos to, to pitch it that way. But nevertheless, here we are. The accord went down. We are back in Havana. We are renegotiating. We are renegotiating uh, in, a, in a fairly favorable circumstance, and that is that the FARC has basically said they don't want to go back to war. The government surely doesn't want to go back to war. The opposition that is largely responsible for, in terms of substance, for galvanizing the number of votes that caused this to fail is now pretty much on board with round two. President Uribe, who was the former president before Santos, he's been championing the opposition on this thing <clears throat> quite vigorously. He, and very much on Twitter, a lot of people say that it, it was unfortunate that he and Twitter ever met, although 
Doesn't sound like any other politicians that uh, we know of. I was about to say something. You, you beat me to the joke, but yeah, that's basically right. Um, but what, what, what's advantageous about this is that Uribe basically set out three or four things that he, think, he says need to be fixed. And yesterday he says, not only are those the things that need to be fixed, not the whole thing. We're not scrapping the whole deal. We just have to fix those four things. Mm -hmm. Now, they're real things, but there are four things. They're not 20 things. So that makes the universe of things that we need to do to, to, to get it back, get back on track, shall I say. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it much more doable. Everyone seems to be on board with making something work. Mm -hmm. What were those, uh, you mentioned stomach-churning uh, uh, things that were difficult to accept? What, what were well, the, 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 hardest, the hardest things in there relate to the justice uh, provisions that will obtain for the leadership of the FARC. No time, basically the deal is, and it's a deal that your listeners may have heard before in the context of these kinds of accords, and that is you tell the truth, and you're pretty much scot-free. If you don't, then you're in trouble and you go to jail and, and the normal justice, the normal wheels of justice apply to you and that, yeah. So, but assuming that, 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 it, that folks tell their story about the horrific things they have done, and they have done horrific things, um, they get off scot-free. You can imagine that's a really tough sell for people who've been in jail in Colombia for so many years on much smaller crimes, and they don't get that deal. Mm -hmm. They don't get anywhere near that deal. I commend to your listeners, uh, go look at uh, the website of Human Rights Watch that did a breakdown of all the uh, really quite detailed breakdown of the justice provisions mm -hmm. um, in this thing. And and uh, and they, they they really do sound awfully generous for people who have suffered at the hands of the FARC. Remember, we're talking about 200,000 people have died in this conflict over the, over the existence of the conflict. Uh, so this is not a, I mean, this is a deep, deep wound in Colombian society. Mm -hmm. Uribe uh, actually, he did try to negotiate when he was president. He was, he was supportive of that effort. But when Santos came into power, he kind of reversed on that and he was against it before a deal was even announced. Um, right. Has his uh, position now on these, these, these four items, which I would love for you to explain what they are, um, but has his position now, uh, you know, has he just come to these four things, or was it that he expected those things would not be on the table in the initial round of negotiations? Well, that's a good question. Uh, so President Santos used to be President Uribe's defense minister. Uribe is known for having effectively crushed the FARC militarily, with the assistance, by the way, of the United States. The famous Plan Colombia, a big part of Plan Colombia was that. Mm -hmm. When Santos became president, he very quickly, as you say, he very quickly did an about face and said, you know what? The only way we're going to do this is we're going to have to sit at the table and hammer out an accord, a peace accord. President Uribe did not like that at all. Former President Uribe at this point did not like that at all. Um, and uh, I guess the rest is history. It sort of takes us to, to, the, to, to the present. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, uh, you know exactly how this is going to go, but I am quite certain that President Santos says that he wants to conclude the second round of negotiations. That's to say he wants to put this whole thing to bed by the end of the year. I would highly recommend to him that he not 
put such a narrow window of time on this. He just let it happen on its own steam. And if we exceed the couple of months, so be it. Uh, as I say, we have, we're not dealing with a huge universe of things to, to try to amend or try to fix. And then once that happens, it gets resubmitted to the Colombian people, and I will bet my bottom dollar that they will say yes this time. Mm-hmm. A, there's going to be no Hurricane Matthew, and B, the Colombians themselves talk about this as their Brexit vote. There's a lot of, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of hang-ring, hand-wringing by the voters right after they lost, saying, oh my gosh, what have we just done? So I am quite convinced that in a second round, they will give this thing a thumbs up. Mm-hmm. So next door in Venezuela... Mm-hmm. There is an enormous crisis unfolding. Correct. Um, can you talk about the crisis? Explain what's brought Venezuela to this point, and uh, what might be happening in response. Far too little, I'm afraid. But but yeah, let me let me take it back a bit. What's happening there is, as we know, that in the late '90s, uh, President Hugo Chavez became the president of Venezuela. What had preceded him was a very corrupt and uh, fairly unsavory uh, political class. Chavez was very charismatic. Uh, he was a military man. He died a couple years ago, and his, uh, his anointed successor was President Maduro. President Maduro did not, and to this day does not have, he, he's afflicted with two very horrible things. He has none of the charm that Chavez had, and he has oil prices under 50 bucks because Chavez had them at about 120. Mm-hmm. And Venezuela is an economy that functions almost exclusively on their vast, vast oil reserves. The result has been pretty spectacular, and that is the economic failure, and, and it is that. It's a mismanagement. And it's a squandering of, of Venezuela's uh, wealth, um, which today has taken us to uh, a food crisis, as you alluded to, a medical crisis, which is horrific. Um, the oil industry itself, it, it almost doesn't matter how you slice it, what part of Venezuela's, Venezuelan society you want to look at, mm-hmm. everything has deteriorated to the point where, well, that's a good, that's a good you know, every, every time we talk about these things, we think we've hit rock bottom in Venezuela, and we haven't because it just keeps going and going and going. The fear there is that um, the only way this continues to go, the only direction this will continue to go is something a little bit closer to a Cuban model, which stays afloat by repression. That is starting to scare people more than it has in the past. I think smart people thought they could wait this out. It really was, for example, the policy of the United States to just stand back and wait for a better moment. But now we're in a different place. Now we're in a place where we have to do something. There is a referendum regarding Maduro's permanence in his post. But what, of course, has happened in Venezuela is that um, in the Chavez years and in the Maduro years after those, all institutions of government have been co-opted by the Chavez-Maduro governments. Um, so even though there is a mechanism and and the the world is watching it try to unfold. I don't, I am not sanguine about the possibilities of it happening. The deal there is it has to happen 
in order to remove him from completely, it all has to happen before the end of the year, including garnering a whole series of signatures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's so many ways in which mostly the Supreme Court, which is a completely government control entity, is stopping the process that it won't get there by the end of the year. If it then passes the end of the year and the referendum on him uh, succeeds in tossing him out after the end of the year, the result is that his vice president becomes president. Mm -hmm. Not much change there. So now all of that sounds like angels on the head of a pin. The problem is the one you alluded to when you asked me the question, and that is, as all of this is happening, the country is spiraling down and down and down, and that is the real tragedy. Now you obviously alluded to the tremendous resources that Venezuela has available to it, albeit less so because of the price of oil. Um, you also said that uh, they've been squandered and mismanaged. Now. When I think of squandered, I think of corruption, and I think of yep. all of that. When I think mismanaged, I think, oh, well, that's a problem that can be fixed. Is it both of those um, or that, one or the other? That's a very good question. That's a very good question, and it is both of those. Uh, it's a very good question because if you do, as I said, we can slice this thing lots of different ways. One of the ways you can slice it is just look at the oil industry in Venezuela. So where's it at mm -hmm. compared to where it was, say, during Chavez's time? And then, of course, before Chavez took over, because one of the things he did, and by the way, Venezuela is, uh, Venezuela's oil uh, company, which is called PDVSA, uh, owns Citgo. Citgo, so of course. So here we are in Boston, and that sign that I keep seeing. Right remind, over Fenway. Right, there you go. <laughs> and I, and I, it's funny, because I don't think anyone else sees this, but every time I go by that sign, I think... Chavez. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> never mind that. Um, so we try to forget that. I yeah, think. yeah, I guess that's right. Um, the oil industry is in a holy mess, but it's it is so they have so much oil that it is not. I, I really think experts say right now that it's not destroyed. The oil in industry of Venezuela is at half the output it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, but it's not destroyed. It's almost impossible to destroy it because it's so rich. They are basically sitting on the biggest reserves in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you can get it back, uh, but but within that industry and just just that one, there is corruption, a lot of it, and there is mismanagement, a lot of it. Can you fix that? Of course you can. Mm -hmm. it takes a little bit of doing, not as much as you think. The corruption is mostly political. The mismanagement is something you can you can fix. I mean, there are a lot of oil companies in the world, and they, they work awfully well. Mm -hmm. They just need to figure out how to get in there and do the right thing. So, obviously, this is this. These are big things happening in in uh, Venezuela, in Cuba. With the opening up of relations with the United States, yep. uh, there seems to be at least a little spark of hope that um, maybe change is coming. Do you think that's possible? Yes, I think uh, <clears throat> I think Cuba is. Uh, I think there is a lot of sort of positive energy around what's happening in Cuba, um, both inside of Cuba and outside of Cuba. Um, I would commend to your readers. Uh, just I don't know when this is going to go out there, but in terms of time, just a couple of days ago, we saw in the New York Times and in other papers that uh, President Obama, for the sixth time made an additional opening in terms of, how, of his policy toward, toward Cuba. And the line was, well, now you can bring back cigars and rum. 
there's a little more to it. Just that. There's a little more to it. And I and I, I want to I want to commend this to your readers. And that is behind the behind the cigars and rum is a presidential policy directive only on Cuba. Mm-hmm. And it just came out days ago. Uh, and it basically spells out, it's a fascinating document because it's written in the first person by President Obama. Um, and it contains a whole series of changes. It contains a whole series of uh, policy wishes about where he, where he hopes this will go. Um, and, um, and it really is, I mean, there is no way to overestimate what this is. This is... This is a complete game changer for the region entirely. It also affects the two things that we just talked about. Both the, you remember that the FARC's uh, patron for 30 years, 35 years, mm-hmm. was the government of Cuba. Sure. While they were in the jungle and before they discovered drug trafficking, uh, it was the Cuban government that kept them afloat. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, when the Soviet Union pulled out of Cuba, Cuba pulled out of the FARC because they just couldn't afford it. I mean, this is the cascade of things that happens. And, and, and mm-hmm. uh, um, But then, of course, the FARC discovered drug trafficking, and that's how they have that, – that, that has sustained them for, for as long as – well, to about now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cuba thing also connects directly to the Venezuela thing um, because um, Venezuela is currently – a patron for Cuba. Right. A patron who is quickly becoming less of a patron. And the Cubans have seen that story before. Soviet Union. That's right. So here we are. These things all come full circle. But these three things that we just talked about are very much connected. The mm-hmm. fact that the United States has finally figured this out and has and President Obama has done something unbelievably clever on top of being historic and on top of being progressive and on top of being all those things it it changes the the dynamic of all of these situations mm-hmm. it's it's subtle but it's happening it's happening as we speak mm-hmm. all of these things are connected none of them would have happened without, without the other they're all moving in lockstep i don't know exactly where they're going uh, but they're all connected what seems particularly interesting, if you take those three countries in particular, is, uh, you know, Colombia obviously receives a tremendous amount of uh, funding from the United States yep. as part of the ongoing drug war. Um, as you said, the United States has taken a step back from Venezuela, but not entirely. The, we still import a fair amount of oil from Venezuela. Yes, I believe they are number four on our list of major oil importers. Right. Uh then of course Cuba, we're we're opening up things up. Is there any reason why? Do you think U.S. policy uh, is moving in the right direction? I get, I gather you do because you seem a supporter of uh, President Obama's efforts. Yes, I I do. As I say, I think they're all connected. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, I would go so far as to say that if our next president here in this country chooses to unwind some of the changes that President Obama has made with respect to Cuba. Those changes will also affect these other places as well. Hmm. And what is the United States' role, and maybe this could equally apply to all the other neighboring countries, um, what is the role of that that region in trying to affect change, I, I think especially in Venezuela? I think the effort right now is on that on that recall referendum. Mm-hmm. Let's, see if it, let's see where it goes. I think everybody 
is is watching Venezuela very closely because it is reached the point where it's explosive, where it could be explosive. Colombia, of course, is right on the border. Um, so Colombia has always been very, very careful about Venezuela for that reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, all these things are connected. The United States is involved in all of it, as they always are. Uh, sometimes they're more clever about it than other times, but they're involved in all of it. I would submit right now their contribution to all of it is is quite positive. Mm -hmm. And what is the uh, the timeline for how you think these things are going to play out? The place where we have to sit back and wait the longest of those three right now is Cuba. Mm -hmm. I think we have a sort of a six-month fuse on both the FARC thing and the Venezuela thing. Cuba is, this has been, this has been a, this has been 55 years, uh, and it will, and, the, and we, we, we decided to do an about-face two years ago. As your listeners, I'm sure know that what what needs to happen next in terms of U.S. changes is that we need to lift the embargo. The embargo cannot be lifted by the president. It has to be lifted by the legislature, our Congress. Uh, I don't see that happening very soon. President Obama has gone about as far as he can go without substantially encumbering the embargo. The next move falls to the Cubans. That means that we have to now cast our gaze into the Cuban political system, into Raul Castro and what he can and cannot do, because some people have the misapprehension that he can wave a magic wand. He can't. His, he has created a monster. He and his brother have created a monster, and now they have to work with that monster, and that is what we're watching. That has a longer fuse than six months. Well, we will watch with great interest. Peter, thank you so much for You're very joining welcome. us I today. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Peter Quilter is a non-resident senior fellow at the Kennedy School's Ash Center. You can find links to all the resources he mentioned earlier on our website, hkspolicycast.org. HKS Policycast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader, along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle, with help from Catherine Serafin on distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.